Hey there, I'm Sarah K. Hoffman, a holistic health coach and chief gutsy of a gutsygirl.com. I went from bloated, gassy, and infertile to living my best life with a strong microbiome and a very full house. On this show, no topic is too stinky to discuss and everything can be broken down into practical, digestible takeaways. So grab a cup of bone broth, veggie broth, or a soothing golden latte if you prefer, and come along as I show you how the number two might just be your new number one. Hello, thank you for joining me for episode 40 of the A Gutsy Girl podcast. My name is Sarah K. Hoffman, aka A Gutsy Girl, and I am your host for this show. First things first, if you love the gut health and gut healing chat and appreciate this podcast, will you please leave an Apple podcast review? In return, more people will get to feel the same inspiration you do. I can keep doing them for free and I'll be so grateful. Also, as a thank you for subscribing, listening, and leaving your reviews, please accept my gift of 20% off anything and everything at agutsygirl.com by using code podcast at checkout. Now, let's get moving on to the subject at hand. SIBO, SIBO, and more SIBO. So to get started, and as a little recap, in case you have not yet listened to my full story, or this is your first episode here with me, I was diagnosed with SIBO in 2014. I relapsed several times, and then I healed for the final time in 2018. SIBO, of course, stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and it is such a common and huge topic in this community. In fact, I just wrapped up recently a huge SIBO series that I did on my YouTube channel. You can find that at Shocking, I know, but a gutsy girl YouTube channel. But I just finished up this huge SIBO series. I believe I recorded about 10-ish videos. You loved them. I kept asking on Instagram for your questions around SIBO. And what I was going to do is I was going to create this entire podcast episode with me just answering all of your SIBO questions. But then I got to thinking and... I thought that it might be far better to hear from an actual SIBO expert. The reason I think I wanted to do it so badly is because so many of you think you might have SIBO or you've already been diagnosed with it and people think or tell you that you're crazy, that SIBO is not real, that it's all in your head and that you need to just get over it. I want you to know And also, it was confirmed on my episode with my guest today that SIBO, yes, it is real. SIBO is very real. If you have been diagnosed with it, please, please, please don't ever give up hope that it can completely be eliminated from your life. So I wanted to invite on someone who was one of the experts in this field, and her name is Dr. Narala Jacoby. You have probably heard of her because she is the creator of the Biphasic Diet, which is sort of on the spectrum of the low FODMAP diet, but it does have its differences. I just wanted to bring her on to ask her the questions and we sort of banter in the best way possible. I mean that in a positive way, positive bantering, but we go back and forth on these questions. I can't tell you how much I loved 
to converse with her. And I loved to hear her confirm and reconfirm all the things that I have thought in the past. And also, I learned some new things that was really fun and really exciting for me. So here is more on today's guest. Dr. Narala Jacoby is a naturopathic doctor and internationally recognized expert on small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. She is the creator of the SIBO Biphasic Diet, a resource that has helped tens of thousands of SIBO sufferers around the world. Dr. Jacoby is the host of the SIBO Doctor podcast and the founder of the SIBO Doctor, an online educational platform that includes a practitioner certification program. She is also the medical director of SIBO Test, providing innovative testing options for SIBO and IBS. Dr. Jacoby is known for her systematic and effective approach to diagnosing and treating SIBO and other functional digestive disorders. Having received her naturopathic doctorate in 1998 from the esteemed Bastyr University in Seattle, Washington, she brings more than two decades of clinical experience and expertise to the Biome Clinic. I hope you love Dr. Narala Jacoby as much as I do. Welcome to the Agutsi Girl podcast, Dr. Jacoby. It's a pleasure to be here, Sarah. We were just talking a little bit before we hit start on this. Dr. Jacoby is on the other side of the world. So it is 8 a.m. where she's at, and it is currently 5 p.m. where I'm at. So bear with us if we're just starting our day, just ending the day, (laughs) that we can (laughs) still have some sort of cohesive conversation here because I just feel so honored that you are here and sharing your thoughts with us today. So I'm sure most people in this community know who you are and about your work, but if you just want to get started and tell everyone about yourself, what you do, your background, and just anything else that might be relevant for this conversation. Yeah, sure. And again, thanks for inviting me. It's it's great to talk to somebody who also has such a presence in the gut health space. So I'm a naturopathic physician and I have been doing this work for almost 25 years. And I practiced in Montana for a long time, but then came to Australia about 17 years ago and started my clinic, started working. And then I learned about SIBO about over a decade ago now. So it's been a long time that I've been focusing on SIBO and I learned about it. It was like, how come I don't know about this condition when most of my patients have some form of IBS or digestive disorder. So I endeavored to learn everything I could about SIBO and started a breath testing company here in Australia and also an education portal for practitioners and really started to educate patients as well and created the biphasic diet. That's probably what people know most about me is this free diet download that I've had for a while now, which is getting a relaunch with lots of different recipes and stuff. So I'm still very much involved in providing education for people and just delivering more information about SIBO. Because as you know, there are just so many people still that don't understand the condition and are really sort of chasing their tail when it comes to treatment. I'm curious, what is your breath test? Uh, Lactulose breath test is basically lactulose and glucose breath tests are used for the diagnosis of SIBO. And basically it's an at-home 
tests that you do and send in, and the vials of breath get analyzed for hydrogen and methane. And depending on the timing of the rise of those gases depends on whether or not you are going to be diagnosed with SIBO or not. Oh, yes. I'm very familiar with the actual breath test. I didn't know if you were part of a certain brand or if you have your own line. Basically, we use the, you know, the gold standard is the Quintron machinery, uh, the breath tracker. So we have that service here in Australia. I've looked at a lot of breath tests over the last 10 years, and it's been really interesting. It's been a really interesting journey so far with SIBO. I love that you can bring that perspective to this conversation as well. So today's conversation really is about SIBO and also just general IBS. I wanted to really have this conversation after I had so many questions from the SIBO community. You know, I talk about it a lot. I had it obviously for a long time. It took a long time to recover from it. I've researched so much about it, but I thought, you know, I would really love the experts' thoughts and opinions on these questions as well to bring even more value. So before we get into all of these questions, one of the most common questions I get in this community is, what is the difference between SIBO versus IBS? And I'm just wondering if you can help us understand it as succinctly as possible. So IBS is actually a really not a great name to be given, but it really is a category of functional gut disorders and meaning that it has a few different causes, SIBO being one of them. So SIBO is a cause of IBS. If you have IBS symptoms, typical bloating, bowel changes, all the typical symptoms that we see with SIBO, and you don't have SIBO, then you can still have other causes of IBS like food sensitivities, microbiome disorders in the large intestine. You can have a lot of similar symptoms that are caused by different conditions, really. But the IBS category is an umbrella term that covers also SIBO. And some people think that SIBO is the biggest cause of IBS, but not everyone who has IBS has SIBO. I hope that makes sense. Yep, that makes perfect sense. And I like when you explained it as an umbrella, think of IBS as the umbrella. And one thing I wanted to just mention, almost everyone in this community will know what IBS and SIBO stand for. However, I because sometimes I have people say, can you just start at the beginning? So just so everyone is well aware, IBS is irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So that we have that just kind of set <laughs> in stone to get this conversation started. Now that we kind of have distinguished between the two in a simple way, let's move on to some of these community questions. So SIBO, the diagnosis is on the rise. And I have been saying since the minute that I was diagnosed in 2014, that they would continue to greatly rise. And I guess I'm curious before we get started, is that something that you're seeing in your practice that is accurate that the SIBO diagnoses are on the rise? There's a couple of causes for that. You know, my practice, I have a clinic called the Biome Clinic where we exclusively treat functional digestive disorders. So I basically have nothing but gut patients, you know. So 
it's hard for me to gauge whether or not that's actually on the rise. But I actually think the diagnosis is getting better and more practitioners are getting educated around how to actually diagnose SIBO. Perhaps that's one of the reasons. I do think that in terms of IBS, another really common cause of IBS is stress. Stress is on the rise. I just see so many people maxed out in terms of what their nervous system can take. So that definitely has an impact on the gut. So I do think gut symptoms are on the rise. And I think that SIBO diagnosis is getting better. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, because I feel like even back in 2014, most doctors, not most, but many, at least here in the United States, they kept telling patients that SIBO is just a made-up term. And I do still find, I hear that is still happening, but I, I do tend to hear it less. Yeah. I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? When, when somebody comes in from a gastroenterologist and has a clear SIBO picture, has a positive lactulose breath test, and they're told, nope, that doesn't exist. It's so frustrating for patients. Yeah. So first question is, Finding the root cause is impossible for me. Why? We're told over and over that you have to figure out the root cause to your SIBO if you want to overcome it. So why is finding the root cause so hard for people? It's not hard for everyone. I do want to preface this. I've created a what caused my SIBO questionnaire that people can download from the SIBOdoctor.com. That's just to help you and your practitioner at least weed out some of these causes. And so let me just give you some explanation of what actually causes SIBO. So if you think about the gut as a tube and the small intestine is sort of the beginning of the tube, and you're supposed to have a certain number of bacteria there, not as many as at the end of the tube, which is the large intestine, That's because the small intestine is the surface area for absorption. So it's really important to not have too many bacteria there. And so the body has different mechanisms to clear out this portion of the tube with a motility wave to clear out bacteria. So sometimes when that motility wave is damaged, then you can have SIBO. Sometimes when bacteria can't leave that portion of the tube that is also a problem. Bacteria can then overgrow. That's more with adhesions and obstruction. And sometimes because of digestive issues further up where you don't have enough stomach acid or enzymes or bile, you're just not killing the bacteria. So those are the three main category of causes. And under each category, you can have different reasons. So for example, in the problem with motility category, you can have numerous causes ranging from mold illness to hypothyroidism to damage to the migrating motor complex. So that category itself is fairly big. You know, it's very difficult for people who aren't medically trained to really get to the bottom of this themselves, I find. That's why I created this questionnaire handout that you can just kind of check to see if you fit into any of these categories. So if, for example, you have endometriosis, then it's possible that you have SIBO because of endometriosis, because endometriosis causes adhesions of scar tissue that can kink or attach to the outside of the bowel and then create sort of an anatomical impairment to the flow there. So that's one major reason. I find that people that have maybe gone through all of that and still can't find it, this is where you really do need expert 
involvement to help you ferret out the root cause. It's like asking a patient to become the practitioner is sometimes too much. Yeah. And I think that also speaks to the point that you have to find a practitioner who is well-versed in SIBO, not just that they believe in SIBO, but that they're well-versed in it because a practitioner could believe in it and say, okay, you have it. Great. Let's give you the antibiotic. Move on. Oh, you relapse. Okay. Let's try something else. And the same cycle. And then these are the people that are saying, how do I find the root cause? Well, unfortunately, if you're not super well-versed, it's going to be pretty hard to figure it out. And also, I will say that because I'm a SIBO doctor, I see patient after patient who thinks they still have SIBO and they come to me, they're like, I can't clear SIBO. We test them. SIBO is not there. You know, testing and retesting is really important to understand whether or not you've actually cleared SIBO and now you still have symptoms so that you can sort of focus on other contributing factors. Don't forget that there is a certain flow that I teach in my courses. I teach the SIBO Mastery course for practitioners and the SIBO Success Plan for patients to really help them understand that there is a flow to not just treatment, but also to finding your cause, which involves retesting. Love it. Okay, let's move on to the next question. The next question is, what do you think about the elemental diet? How about the low FODMAP diet? Or I obviously know you have the biphasic diets. You can talk about that one as well. But what do you just think about diets and SIBO in general? So the elemental diet is not a diet for SIBO. It's a treatment for SIBO. It's basically a meal replacement plan that you do for two to three weeks as an antimicrobial treatment, and you're starving the bacteria in the upper gut. So that's a treatment. So that's not really a sustainable diet for SIBO. But a lot of people do well on a low FODMAP diet. And for those of you listening who are unfamiliar with this, it's basically a diet that's low in fermentable carbohydrates that also prevents bacteria from feeding on fermentable starches, lessening symptoms. I'm a big believer in basically adding in some sort of dietary restrictions to really maximize your success in SIBO treatment. That's why I created the biphasic diet, which is a little different from just pure FODMAP because a lot of FODMAP patients have tried the low FODMAP diet and still are symptomatic. The biphasic diet is basically a diet that divides the treatment into two phases, as the name implies. So the first phase is quite strict without much carbohydrate involvement. And then as you get into the treatment phase of using antimicrobials, we're adding back a few starches and carbohydrates to also stimulate bacteria and feed a little bit so that we can actually kill them. So that was a diet that I've used now and it's been downloaded for, I don't know how many tens of thousands of times, but it's been really successful for people as a means of aiding treatment. I don't recommend doing it indefinitely because you want to add in fermentable fibers because you need to also feed your large intestinal bacteria to keep your microbiome healthy. So long-term FODMAP and low fermentable carbohydrate diets are sort of suboptimal for a healthy microbiome. When you have people do the biphasic diet, about how long do your two phases take? About three months. The reason I wanted to ask that is because there's so many people in this community that think no matter what condition they have and what templated dietary protocol they're following with it needs to be a year or two years or three years, four years. I like someone like you to say, you know, it's not really meant to be this long-term plan. Right. And, you know, I see too many people that have tried to have a go at it 
themselves and have been on super restrictive diets for a long time. And then anytime they add food back in, they become symptomatic. And I always explain to people, look, you've kind of painted yourself into a corner with eating only 10 foods because you've now selectively fed a group of bacteria. And anytime you add any food back in, you will become symptomatic. And you just have to kind of grin and bear it for a little while until you can broaden your diet step by step by step, because those bacteria will quiet down. I mean, this is more when we're talking about microbiome restoration, not so much about SIBO treatment, but it becomes problematic when people are very sensitive and become very restrictive in their diets. So when talking about any specific foods, there's certain foods that people ask a lot if they're quote unquote safe for healing. One is the guar gum. I know that a lot of protocols use it now as part of the healing protocol. And then another one is sprouted gluten-free oats or just really anything that's sprouted. Can you say anything about those two items or any other specific foods that maybe are really conducive for healing SIBO or absolutely stay away from? PHGG or partially hydrolyzed guar gum kind of became popular because it was a small study, but it showed that it actually potentiated the effects of rifaximin, which is the primary antibiotic used for hydrogen-dominant SIBO. And so we started using it because, you know, we want rifaximin because it's so expensive. We want it to work as best as possible. There's another small study that showed that PHGG can help reduce methane. You know, it was small, but still respectable. And I find that especially for methane-dominant SIBO, it's been a really well-tolerated prebiotic. And prebiotics are supplemental products that feed very specific bacteria and are helpful for microbiome restoration. But in SIBO cases, a lot of prebiotics are actually not used because you don't want to feed the wrong kind of bacteria. So finding a safe prebiotic is always great. And PHCG falls into that category, especially when constipation is dominant. Sorry, what was the other part of your question? It was the sprouted gluten-free oats. Oh, yeah. So yes, yeah, sprouting in general, actually, you know, when I created the vegetarian biphasic diet, we really investigated the effects of sprouting on grains and legumes. And what happens when you sprout a grain or legume is it utilizes that germination process, utilizes the starches or the FODMAPs of that substance. So you can actually sprout lentils and azuki beans and rice and all that. And it really makes them a lot more digestible, not just for SIBO patients, but for people that generally have issues with legumes. So sprouting them before you cook them is really, really helpful for tolerance. So I'm a big fan of that. I don't use the sprouted oat product that you talk about, but I use other prebiotics also. Sometimes when you know, like in my line of work, I don't just, when I see somebody that has SIBO, I also check their large intestine just to understand the health of their general microbiome because a lot of times symptoms from large intestinal microbial imbalances contribute to SIBO symptoms. So when I see somebody that has a really denuded microbiome, I do use really targeted prebiotics to try to help rebuild their microbiome, even sometimes during SIBO treatment. Like I use Things like Bimuno, for example, which is a prebiotic from the UK that is really helpful for bifidobacterium replenishment. So I use different prebiotics and different probiotics, very, very specific and under very specific circumstances. So not a general recommendation. The only one that I can say is PHGG is pretty great 
for methane dominant SIBO. Good to know. Okay, the next topic that I want to discuss is the topic around the SIBO antibiotics. Obviously, two of the most common would be the rifaximin and or the neomycin. So a lot of people will take the antibiotics and then they'll relapse. This person had asked, they said that they relapsed for the third time and they didn't want to do antibiotics again. So what other options are there? And I know that there's a lot of people wondering the same thing. And I also relapsed, I think, four or five times before I healed for good. And I was once wondering this same thing. So when this happens, what do you do? And also, I would love your thoughts on the SIBO antibiotics in general. So, okay, let's start with rifaximin. Rifaximin is an antibiotic that is what we call bile-soluble. And what that means is it stays in the small intestine. So for that reason, it's a perfect antibiotic for SIBO because we don't really want a broad-spectrum antibiotic to affect our large intestinal microbiome. So for that reason, it's been really useful and it's great. It works. It can have some side effects, but for the most part, people feel really good on it. Now, I will say that as a naturopathic practitioner here in Australia, I use mostly herbs. We say herbs, right? <laughs> in Australia, we don't say herbs. I had to really break that habit of saying herbs. These herbs are basically depending on what kind of gas is dominant. So if you have hydrogen dominant SIBO, we use a lot of berberine containing herbs. There are a number of them, but you can also get berberine extract. Oregano also works and neem also works, but I primarily use berberine for that. And then if methane is dominant, we usually use a very high dose garlic extract or oregano oil. So those are the sort of, I'd say, primary products that I use. And I start with that. If and again, I cannot emphasize enough to consider retesting after each round of antimicrobials because you need to know if you're a relapser, you need to know which has actually worked. And so many times I have people that say, I'm a chronic relapser. We go through the motions of doing the antibiotics and retesting, and it's actually clear, but they're still symptomatic. And so oftentimes practitioner just go by patient symptoms to determine whether or not a patient has relapsed. And I just think that's not a good way of doing it because people think they're relapsed, but they don't, they haven't. It's just some other cause that's caused the symptoms that's always been there and contributing to the whole SIBO picture. So that's really important to consider. But let's say that somebody has used those herbs and has not cleared SIBO, I will then use rifaximin. And if they still don't clear it, I will then use the elemental diet. So it's really rare that somebody will fail all three kinds of antimicrobial strategies. And if that's the case, I use then liquid herbs because oftentimes their SIBO is so what we call proximal, which means it's in the duodenum, in the very beginning of the small intestine, where if you take a capsule, sometimes it just bypasses that section. So there's different strategies I use. and. I don't think it's ever failed me to have one of those not work. So that question of that person that's been using antibiotics, the herbs that you have to use depend on what type of SIBO you have. Yep. And the way that you did it is exactly, or how you do do it is exactly what I did. I did the herbs for quite some time. We didn't get there. And then I did the antibiotics. And then right on the very last time of the antibiotics, I 
had to switch a lot of my lifestyle things, you know, kind of going back to the stress component that you mentioned at the beginning. And I had to do a whole host of things. But in addition to the antibiotics, I healed. However, I told myself that and my practitioner, we said, if this doesn't work, we have to do elemental and I was dreading it. So I'm so thankful that I came out. So for methane, though, I know you said garlic, and then you said oregano as well for methane. Yes, I find that pretty useful. Although you have to be careful with oregano, because, you know, you don't want to be long term on it, because it is quite strong, and it can affect your healthy microbiome. One other thing I forgot to mention about this person asking about using antibiotics for SIBO again and again and again. In those cases, what I also would consider is adding in a biofilm buster. Biofilm busters are not required for everyone. It's not part of my routine SIBO treatment, but it is helpful in those cases, as well as if you, let's say that person is a hydrogen type SIBO and they've been using rifaximin again and again, and it's not really working, then I would add in a biofilm buster, PHTG and Oxfile. In oxbile, because as I mentioned earlier, rifaximin works really well in a bile environment. And those three additions, I think, are really useful. Yes, I used oxbile as well. So, do you ever use neomycin or any uh, antibiotic for methane dominant, or do you always find success with just the herbs? Let me go back with methane. So, methane is a really curious thing, I find, because methane, it's methanogens or bacteria or organisms that produce methane are not pathogenic. You know, unlike the hydrogen producers where we see E. coli and Klebsiella that produce hydrogen, but the methane is produced by Methanobrevibacter smithii, which is an organism, very ancient organism that actually helped us in evolutionary processes because when you, it slows down digestion, that's why it causes constipation. But in times when, you know, we were hunters and gatherers and ate a lot of roughage, it really helped to extract calories from this type of food. And it concentrates hydrogen gas because hydrogen gas feeds into methane production. So you're actually concentrating the gas. So it's not a pathogen. And I always have to tell patients that, that yes, we're trying to control it. We're not trying like totally eradicating it. Your gut is not a sterile environment, and there's a reason why methane is there. And often it's there because of other reasons. I'm not saying we shouldn't treat it. Definitely not, because people are symptomatic when methane is quite high. They have a lot of constipation. Often they have a fungal overgrowth. We're seeing a lot of correlation with high methane and fungal overgrowth or mold. So it's more like, all right, well, what's going on here? Rather than just always trying to kill, 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 I try to understand the situation and really approach it from that perspective. Now, to answer your question about neomycin, neomycin, I have a little bit more reservation about neomycin because I've had a few patients with ototoxicity, which is ringing in the ear and sort of dizziness and things like that. So not a huge fan of neomycin, but it does work to bring methane down in really tough cases. So I'm not opposed to it. But oftentimes what I do when I see a mixed case of hydrogen and methane, I use Rifaximin and Alimax or high-dose garlic extract or oregano. And that seems to also work. I love that. Yes, I had a very stubborn case and I had hydrogen and methane. And I am so grateful because I did have side effects from the neomycin for sure. But I never got the ringing in the ears that a lot of people get. 
I was just really nauseous for, I mean, at least a good couple hours right after taking it. So for the first 14 days of this 28-day course that I would do with the Rifaximin added, I just felt miserable. And literally the day that the neomycin stopped, I felt just fine. So I always caution that too. And I was so desperate to have the herbals work. Like you said, the garlic with it and everything, we tried a lot. So I completely echo everything that you said. Thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. Okay. The next question is, can you have SIBO and not know it? Like have mild symptoms that the doctors miss? This is one that I'm actually curious about as well, because I had very classic SIBO symptoms and they were very prevalent. I mean, the first time I saw the functional practitioner who actually was able to diagnose me with it, he looked at me and almost immediately knew because I was pretty classic. But I'm wondering, do you ever see anyone who comes in and they feel off? They know something might be wrong, but they just have some not typical symptoms. So if somebody comes in and says, you know, like you say, the classic symptoms, you know, I'd say the number one classic symptom of SIBO is bloating fairly soon after you eat rather than towards the end of the day or so, which is, in my opinion, more related to large intestinal overgrowth or, or imbalances. And just remember that for those listeners that your large intestine is meant to have a huge number of bacteria. So you're going to have all kinds of things wrong there. So when somebody says that, you know, I'm bloated right after meals and my problems started after a case of food poisoning or, you know, those kinds of classic SIBO statements, I think SIBO. But if somebody says, I have no digestive symptoms, but I have histamine intolerance and a lot of food sensitivities, I might think SIBO, but I would start more with looking at microbial metabolites and uh, leaky gut and those types of things or potentially fungal overgrowth. So, you know, I've been deeply immersed in SIBO research and this patient after patient. So I've really started to see patterns of this. You know, there are a few different conditions that are very highly associated with SIBO. So even if they don't have many digestive symptoms, I will test them for SIBO. And those conditions are restless leg syndrome, acne rosacea, that's a really classic interstitial cystitis, which is burning bladder syndrome. We have to just rule it out because I have had that where somebody had very minimal digestive symptoms and did have SIBO and had restless leg or acne rosacea or interstitial cystitis. So that can happen. But most of the time when somebody doesn't have a lot of gut symptoms, I wouldn't think SIBO as my first so speaking of leaky gut, is it possible to improve leaky gut while having SIBO or do you think the SIBO should be treated first, chicken and egg scenario? That's a really good question because SIBO actually causes leaky gut. We know that. There was a great study that showed that once SIBO was eradicated, leaky gut healed within a month. Although, you know, the chronic cases that we see, it takes a lot longer to heal leaky gut, typically, because people are nutritionally depleted, etc. But I've kind of structured my biphasic diet to actually address a bit of gut inflammation first and to reduce fermentable fibers so that we have sort of a naturally slowdown of bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. So you're actually just kind of not starting with antimicrobials. You're just quieting everything down and using a little bit of anti-inflammation, healing a bit of leaky gut 
so that you're not so hugely flared up when you're starting antimicrobials. And that's been really successful. But generally speaking, I think it would be a, a statement that I support that says you can't really get rid of leaky gut unless you get rid of SIBO. Yeah, that was definitely my experience as well. And I wonder about that because that's debatable, but testing showed that I was intolerant to like 22 foods at one point. Today, I eat anything and everything. I have no signs, symptoms. I function optimally. Isn't that great? Well, that's why my tagline is heal your gut, heal your life, because I found out what that looks like. I just want everyone to feel that. You know, it's so incredible. I think about that all the time. It could not happen and it did not happen until my SIBO healed in 2018. Before that, I was just a mess. Like nothing would work, seemingly. Yeah. Okay. So here's a topic in the SIBO community that is so controversial. And I can't wait to hear what your thoughts are on it. But what do you believe is the gold standard when it comes to probiotics and SIBO? And I'm not talking really about eating probiotic-rich foods. I'm talking about taking a probiotic. The way I use probiotics, I use strain-specific probiotics. Now, what does that mean? It means that research has supported the use of a particular strain of probiotic with a symptom or condition. So for example, when we look at constipation, I use Bifidobacterium HN019, which is in different combinations of probiotics, because in research, it has really shown that it improves constipation. And in my practice, I see that it works not always, you know, nothing always works every time, but it works fairly consistently. And for food sensitivities, leaky gut, things like that, lactobacillus rhamnosus, GG, or for hydrogen sulfide, lactobacillus reuteri. So different strains, different symptoms or conditions. So that's the way I think of it. And I think it's a mistake to think that there's one probiotic out there that's going to help everyone because everyone is unique and has different presentation. Even under the umbrella of SIBO, people are different, have different experiences, different symptoms, different food habits, different microbiomes. So I never think that there is a silver bullet for one product helping everyone. So if you're somebody who's tried a lot of probiotics and are not really noticing any difference. That doesn't mean that probiotic isn't doing anything. It might mean that you might need some other type of treatment before probiotics can really support you. Now, the reason why there's a lot of controversy around probiotics is because obviously adding in more bacteria in an already overgrown situation theoretically is contraindicated. However, when we look at what's actually causing SIBO, it's not lactobacillus and it's not bifidobacterium. It's usually Klebsiella and E. coli, which are gram-negative bacteria that are really overgrown in the small intestine. When you react to a probiotic, that can have different reasons. It can be that you have leaky gut and you actually have become sensitized to particular strains of probiotics or you have histamine intolerance or the myriad of reasons why people react to probiotics. But I do use probiotics often in the middle of antimicrobial treatment, depending on what that person's symptoms are. And in my SIBO success plan, you get like a whole thing of a dispensary guide where I talk about different products and what strains are in what. 
I love that. I have a post actually on my website all about probiotic strains and species because it just started to drain on me that so many people were going to the doctor and their doctors were saying, yes, you need a probiotic. And then the patient would say, oh, okay, do you have one you can recommend? Nope, it doesn't matter. You just need to go get a high quality with, you know, 50 billion strains of whatever and you're fine. Yeah, that just is so irritating, isn't it? It's just, and there's so many bad probiotics out there. It's an art to actually produce a good lasting probiotic that is really the strain that you need. You can't just go to Walmart and pick it up from the shelf, you know? <laughs> it just doesn't work like that, so. Love it. Okay, so... There's just a couple more questions, but one is, why don't regular, I'm guessing that what this person meant by regular, they meant Western and or conventional doctors think SIBO is real. It takes 20 years or more to, for any new discovery to trickle down into the MD or GP's office. It just takes time because of the bureaucracy of the medical establishment and research to catch up too. You know, even though we know Dr. Pimentel is probably one of the best or well-known SIBO researchers, he's been at it for, I'd say, close to 20 years or more, but that's just one researcher. There's huge amount of research into SIBO. It's much, much more accepted than when you were diagnosed, Sarah, in 2014. It is more accepted now, but still not everybody knows about it. I get people from all around the world contacting me with this problem. So unfortunately, it just takes time. It doesn't mean it's not real. We know it's real. We know people improve when we treat it. It just means that the medical establishment has not really trickled it down into the medical offices. Yeah. And something that I also want to add to this as well is that I can't tell you how many times I had eye rolls from doctors thinking that no, where are you reading about these woo-woo things like SIBO? And at the end of the day, your practitioner, your doctor, they work for you. And so if they're making you feel less than, even though you have been diagnosed with it, or you strongly believe that you do, you can always find another practitioner. You know, there's even people like Dr. Jacoby, and you can reach out to her. She's in Australia, but there's many wonderful practitioners that are educated and that will listen to you and not make you feel like that. Yes, I totally echo that. There are still a lot of doctors where it's been years since they really cracked a medical journal. Unfortunately, that's the case. So find somebody that really listens to you. We have a find a SIBO doctor, a practitioner database that is growing for people that have been trained with my trainings and things like that. And we have a functional practice here in Australia, but we do Zoom calls and I have a team of trained practitioners here. So people are out there that know what's going on. And kind of going back to what you said about a doctor saying, just take any probiotic, it's because people really aren't trained about not just SIBO, but about microbiome in general. That field is exploding with research and I have a hard time keeping up with it, but I feel like I've got a fairly good grasp on how to interpret different stool tests and stuff. But the average medical doctor has like no chance to know what they're talking about when it comes to stool tests, when these functional stool tests that we do. Final question from the community. What do you think is one thing people get wrong when it comes to SIBO? Oh, boy, that's hard to limit to just one, I think. 
But I think if you're on this merry-go-round of constantly using antimicrobials, something is wrong. You need to have another set of eyes on this because it should not be this difficult to treat bacteria. Treating bacteria is not difficult. Treating the cause or finding the cause, that can be a little bit more tricky, but not impossible. I see a lot of people that have been on sometimes years of rotating antimicrobials, and that just causes a lot of problems with rebuilding their normal healthy microbiome. Love it. Thank you so much. So you have mentioned a lot of really great resources. I have been writing them all down. I will be sure to link to them. I think maybe even a couple of years ago, you shared your What Caused My SIBO, the handout on my website. So I'll be sure to link to all that. But can you just tell the audience where they can connect with you online? I believe, do you have a new course coming out or just, just tell us what you're up to? Oh, yes. Thank you, Sarah. You know, my platform is the SIBODoctor.com, the SIBODoctor.com, and that has a lot of resources. So you can still find the biphasic diet there, but I'm relaunching it. It's always been free, but I'm adding a sort of a minimal charge to it because it's now a huge ebook with lots of recipes and a lot more foods and a lot more information and things like that. So that's coming in July is the relaunch of the biphasic diet. And we're also launching a product line. That's very, you know, basic. It's berberine, it's Alimed, it's oregano, it's something I call gut primer, which is just something to help your gut heal. Because I got so many requests that people can't find practitioners and they were using all sorts of not very good products. So I really wanted to offer something to people that don't have access to practitioners. So that's coming in July. So that's on the SIBODoctor.com. You can also find my clinic the Biome Clinic, B-I-O-M-E, clinic.com. We have a team here of about six practitioners who are well-trained in everything SIBO and functional digestive disorders. I have SIBO Test. Yes, SIBO Test is just an Australian breast testing company. And you can find me on Instagram at Dr. Neural. I don't even know. It's a long handle. Dr. <laughs> Neurala Jacoby, the SIBO doctor, I think. I'm not as everywhere as you are, Sarah, but I'm doing my part in helping people out. You are doing fantastic. That's why there's people like me to make sure we spread your message and get people into your hands, which is the important part. So I do have listeners from all over the world, but there are a lot in the United States. Are there any of these products, offering services, anything that is not available to people in the United States? Would it just be the testing? Yeah. And that's fine. I don't actually want to test test kits overseas. You know, it's too much of a carbon footprint, really. So there's plenty of testing opportunities. And I'll also have a link on my website to American test sites and things like that. That's coming as well. The products are going to be US-based. So and have tons of US patients. So we have a big audience for the SIBO doctor in the US. Yes. If I ever relapse, which I won't, I absolutely know I won't. I'm going to stay fantastic. You will not. Forever. <laughs> but I know exactly where I'm going, exactly where I'm going. Okay. So at the end of my interviews, I always ask my guests for their three convictions around gut health and gut healing. And for reference, mine are heal your gut, heal your life, which I already mentioned. Everything is beautiful in its time and no one will ever advocate for your health in the ways you can show up and glow up for you. So Dr. Narala Jacoby, what are your two or three convictions? 
wow, they're not going to be as concise and nice as yours. But like, if I look at what are the three things that I see that people are struggling with the most when it comes to their gut, number one, I think, is the gut-brain connection. The gut-brain connection is real, meaning that massive stress and stress pattern in your life or previous trauma that creates stress patterns does affect your digestion. I work with people in different ways, whether that's gut-based hypnotherapy or brain retraining or whatever. I do think that that is a huge problem for people is not really managing stress. And stress is a very vague term and I don't really like it. It's more overwhelm, I find. So that's number one is work with finding ways to calm your nervous system, get out of the sympathetic nervous system and into the parasympathetic nervous system. My second conviction is eating is meant to be an enjoyable act. Like what you mentioned, that you can eat everything again. Isn't that wonderful that you have the freedom to eat anything you want? Meaning that if you travel, you can eat the local fare. You don't have to micromanage this and that, this and that. So I feel like that's our goal is to get you back to have that freedom of eating what your body really wants and what you're craving or craving, you know, that's always a loaded term because a lot of people crave bad food. So that's not really the thing, but that you have the plethora of options that are healthy and good and can help your microbiome and not have to sort of worry about that. So that's the goal. And then my third conviction is really, I'm a big believer in trust and intuition and trusting your gut that's called for a reason. A lot of people are in situations that they know create stress for them, whether that's work or relationship or whatever that may be. And they just, you know, feel it in their gut that it's not the right situation for them, but out of fear are not moving to make a change. And so I feel that kind of links back to the first thing that the gut brain connection. So the more stresses in your life, the more, you know, you will potentially aggravating your gut symptoms. So that's the third one. And lastly is don't keep at it with yourself, treating your own gut if you are not getting any better. You know, find somebody to help you. Love those. Those were so, so good and such a great way to end this show. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Jacoby. And to you out there, thank you for joining us. I will see you again next time.